a new handout, and it's yellow. Um, but first, we got, we got, is Al here? Al is here. Um, anyone have any questions from this morning? Um, either Al can field them, or I can try to field something, or whatever, but as is our custom, any, any additional thoughts from this morning's message? Thank you, Al, by the way. Thank you very much for, for serving us that way. Um, it's handout time then, I guess. Can I get someone to help with the handouts? Can, can this, the Olsgaard brothers, can you guys take a, take a half each? Here's your handouts. Okay. Now, we're moving from studying. We, here's, here's what we've covered so far in our overview of Christian theology. In the last year, we have gone over the doctrine of God, God the Father, and we, we looked a bit at, at, at and, and this is just an overview, and any of these topics we could, we could stay and camp out for, you know, months, um, but we looked at God the Father, we looked at the doctrine of the scriptures already, and the inerrancy, the infallibility, the trustworthiness, the clarity of scripture, and then we went f- first from God the Father to the Word, and then to Jesus Christ and His person and His work. And, and we then naturally that went into the Gospel and man and sin and judgment and the cross. And we've just finished um, spending a number of weeks dealing with uh, the final bit of our study of the Gospel of um, what, must I, what must I do to be saved? And then we talked about predestination and election and we just wrapped all that up. And finally, now we're moving on unless there's any questions, and I'll pause for questions on, on the issues relating to salvation. But your handout, we're going to look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So before we dive into the handout, um, Steve, you've got to have at least one question. You've got to have at least one question, Steve. <laughs> about anything, no. Um, about... Mm. Okay, okay, very good. Okay. You can just put him right there. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, yes, we are going to look at the doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity we know the least about. Now, we still know plenty about the Holy Spirit, but compared to what we know about God the Father and what we know about God the Son, the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity least um, clearly revealed in Scripture. And... We will look at this. And, and the reason why I start with the person and work of the Holy Spirit is because there are some cults um, that, that believe that the Holy Spirit is not a person. If I'm not mistaken, um, Jehovah Witness and even Mormons, I think, just believe the Holy Spirit's kind of this force emanating from God. It's, he is not personal. And so we're going to start by looking at, if you guys would open your Bible to John 14. Jesus probably has the most to say about the Holy Spirit closely followed by Paul. But in Jesus, in the upper room discourse in John, in John 14, Jesus has ended his earthly ministry in John's gospel, and he goes up and he spends one night with his disciples before he is arrested and crucified. And as he's talking to them, he, he talks about the coming helper, the coming one who will, who will, as he leaves, he's preparing to leave, the one who will come and, and minister to the church and to God's people. And in John 14, 26, we read, let's start at 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things 
and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And what's interesting there is anyone, does anyone here take in any like a, a language that's inflected like Spanish that has like masculine and feminine words? Anyone? Anyone take, work with any language like that? Well, grammatically, Greek's got three. They've got masculine, feminine, and neuter. The word pneumatos, spirit, um, we get pneumatic from that, is a neuter word. Um, you would expect grammatically that when Jesus says, um, you see the highlighted word, um, right after my name, he will teach you. It's a pronoun. We, he's is a pronoun. You would expect a neuter pronoun. You would expect Jesus to say that, it. And he doesn't. He actually uses bad grammar. He, he matches a masculine pronoun with a neuter word. What he's doing is he's emphatically demonstrating the spirit is a he, not an it. You understand what I'm saying? Grammatically, you'd expect when, he, when he, the pronoun comes in, it would be neuter because the word it's representing, pneumatos, or pneumati, is a neuter word. And so when Jesus puts in a, a masculine pronoun, it, it's emphatic. The Holy Spirit is a person, and it, the Holy Spirit is a he. Um, I, I first, you guys, I just mentioned Anthony Mancuso. I just remember when I was at your, no, I was at the Brewer House. Brewer House, and the first time I met Anthony, the first time I remember meeting Anthony, he had, he had told me that one of his professors over at Simpson had taught that the Holy Spirit was, was a woman, and I just about, you know, pulled my hair out, and I ran out, and I'm getting this, but, but this, this is one of the texts that makes it clear, makes it clear that the helper, the Spirit, is a person, and he, he is a masculine person, whatever that means um, for a spiritual being, the Spirit is a person, is a he. So let's just start then um, by looking at some of the, the, some of the uh, things we can learn about the Holy Spirit. So we're just going to sort of move through here. If you guys would open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, one of the reasons why we, we know so little comparatively about the Holy Spirit is because... The, the three members of the Trinity are all equally God. We'll see that. They're all God in being or in essence, but in function, there is diversity in the Trinity. So it's not the Father who redeems sinful men. It's the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Son does the Father's will. Well, the Spirit, from what we can gather, He, the Holy Spirit, primarily is trying to draw attention to Christ. And, and so Jesus says later in John 14, he won't speak on his own authority. He won't speak on his own accord. He'll speak what, what I've given him to say, what the Father gives him to say. And, and so he's the one trying to put the spotlight on Jesus so it makes sense that, that the Spirit is not drawing, is, it's not as much emphasis, the, the camera is not zooming in as much on the Holy Spirit, although certainly in the book of Acts, um, the Holy Spirit, he features front and center. Um, and so, so that's part of the explanation. Yes, Jim. Right, right. In, in, indeed, indeed. The, the, the Holy Spirit does what he wants. 
Um, and we'll, we'll see some more of that as we move into looking. We're going to go from here, the, the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at his person, his identity. Then we're going to look at his ministry in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at his ministry in the New Testament, which will lead us into a discussion of spiritual gifts, which will lead us into a discussion of the church. That's, that's sort of the movement if we're going to go over the next month or so. Um, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And the point we're making here is the Spirit possesses an intellect, emotion, and will. The Spirit possesses an intellect, emotion, and will. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And simply put, here's your blank, he knows the thoughts of God. And knowing is something minds do. Rocks don't know things, at least as far as we can tell. Minds know things. And he has therefore a mind. He knows the thoughts of God. Point B, he has a mind. He searches the, the, the thoughts of God. So the Spirit is, is credited here with intellect. You with me? Okay. And some of this may seem like obvious, but because, like I said, there's, there's other factions and cults that, that think the Spirit is just an impersonal force, we want to emphasize, no, no, he's a person. Jesus says he. Here the Spirit is, is searching and thinking. Um, Romans 8.27 Let's turn there. And in Romans 8.27, we have this verse. Let's go back to 26 to make it clear who we're talking about. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now there, the Spirit is interceding, but clearly the mind of the Spirit. He has a mind. Okay? Any, any questions with that? We're starting sort of foundationally. But I think it's good to know why we believe what we believe. Um, spirit has a mind. Okay, the Spirit has emotions. Ephesians 4.30. Let's turn over there. We're just going to sort of, you can know we're heading next, because after that we'll be going to Romans 13, 15, I mean. So Ephesians 4, verse 30, says the following. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So apparently it is possible to grieve, to cause to suffer, cause pain, the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved Right? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So clearly, the potential, the possibility of grieving the Spirit is on the table so he can be grieved, which is part of someone's emotional life. Again, rocks don't get grieved. Computers don't become discouraged or, or suffering pain. Romans 15.30. Let's turn there. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So the Spirit loves. 
And we could find numbers of passages to make these points, but I'm just grabbing one or two. So the Spirit first is attributed with mental capacity and thinking and searching and praying. And then we see the Spirit has an emotional life. The Spirit can be grieved, and the Spirit loves. And, and finally, go to, go to 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the Spirit has volition and will, intent, purpose, plans. Let's, yes, sir. Yes. Sure. Well, I, I think part of that implication is, is unpacked by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. It, it's interesting. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is dealing with people who are using the argument. It's kind of a platonic argument that because, because my spirit's holy, but gosh darn it, I live in this fallen, dirty, sinful body, and don't you know it? My body has these desires, and I want to eat a cheeseburger, and I eat a cheeseburger, and I want to sleep with a prostitute, and I sleep with a prostitute, and... Hey, you know, um, just one of these days I'll be free of this broken, sinful body, and until then, what do you do? That's kind of their justification for visiting prostitutes, coming out of platonic dualism. The physical world's bad, the spiritual's good. I get this physical body, what do you expect it to do? And Paul could enter into the argument by saying, it's forbidden, stop. But he actually enters into their metaphysical argument, and he says, okay, let's work this through. Do you not know your, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's within you. How do you think the Holy Spirit feels inside you when you're with a prostitute. And you join yourself with a prostitute and God himself is in you, joined to a prostitute in you. I would suggest that's the way to grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, he doesn't come out and say it. The clear implication is, because he says, would you join Christ with a prostitute? You know, and, and you're supposed to be abhorrent to that. And you're like, oh, no. You know? And so I would suggest that's one way of, of grieving the Spirit. Yes, Carol. Mm. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure, absolutely. Carol's point is, is well taken. The most immediate would be the context. So when Paul says in 4.30, um, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, before and after that command are all sorts of don't do this, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Don't be bitter. Don't be by implication, the way you don't grieve the Spirit is by not doing these things. Um, and again, the Spirit is, is dwelling inside of me. And so there's a sense in which the Spirit has to, he has to endure what I'm doing. And if what I'm doing is righteous and good, I, I think you know, we, we, he's pleased. And if what we're doing is, is, is unrighteous and wicked, it, it grieves him, I, would be my, by implication especially with the way Paul presses that point even further in 1 Corinthians 6. But thank you, Carol. Well, well taken. Any other questions on this grieving concept of the Holy Spirit? But there's nothing about grieving, and there's nothing, Zach, in Ephesians 4 that would suggest that grieving the Spirit causes him to leave. It just says don't grieve him. You know, um, don't, don't cause him anguish. Any other, uh, any other questions before we move on? It's a good question. Good question. Okay, 
He grieves and he loves. Now we're going to look at he has a will and a volition. Um, you guys get what I mean by volition and will? He makes plans. He makes decisions. He, he has a purpose. And so Paul, talking about spiritual gifts, and we'll come to spiritual gifts in a few weeks, says this. Um, in verse ooh, 11. Well, let's start back at the beginning of the paragraph, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What Paul's saying is, it's the Spirit's decision who gets what gift. The Spirit decides. He has a will, and he apportions them out according to his will. The Spirit has a will. The dis- so the, the blanks here, the distribution of spiritual gifts is according to his will. It's according to his will. And finally, and again, this is just a brief overview. In Acts 16, and I can read it or you can turn there if you want. I'll, I'll be happy to read the passage. In Acts 16, we see that, and here's the blank, he gives guidance. He gives guidance. Acts 16, 6 through 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So somehow, we're not sure how, the Spirit is guiding and directing Paul. The Spirit's saying, no, don't go there, don't, don't go there. And so the Spirit is giving guidance. And that's the point here. He has a will and, and he has purposes. Um, and we could, we could go much deeper with this, but hopefully at this point we've established the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Any, any questions on this? The Holy Spirit's a person. The Holy Spirit. Well, go to Romans 8. It's, it's, it's hard to nail down. And this is because in Greek, the preposition of can also mean from or belonging to. Um, but I was just reading Romans um, the other day with a friend of mine. And in Romans 8, this jumped out at me as the interplay of how the Spirit is spoken of, how he is referred to. So in Romans 8, verse 9, look at, look at the swapping back and forth. And again, remember, the Greek... Um, the Greek preposition um, or the Greek of, the genitive case, can mean of, from, belonging to, sourced. Um, you, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of or the spirit from God dwells in you. You could translate it either way, the spirit of God, the spirit belonging to God, the spirit from God. Those would all be valid translations. So first we have the spirit of God, or the spirit from God. Um, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
So now, first, first he's referred to as the spirit of or from God. Now he's the spirit of or from Christ. And, and we understand this because it's the Father and the Son who collectively send the spirit. So he's sent by the Father and by the Son. The, script, the scriptures will attest to both um, as being true. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Then it takes it a step further. If Christ is in you, so first the Holy Spirit is the spirit of God, then he's the spirit of Christ, then he's Christ in you. Also, the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so now we're back to the spirit. It, it's, it's real. No, this, in one paragraph, this really jumped out at me. I was like, wow, Paul is really flexible and comfortable with how he speaks of the spirit as relating to the Father, as relating to the Son, um, and dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, raise, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But then by the time we get a little further in the chapter, the Spirit is just the Spirit, no longer referencing the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Son, just the Spirit. We saw that earlier, um, verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we ought to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes. So after this introductional phrase, this was the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, Christ in you, the Spirit of whom we're... By the, later in the chapter, it's just the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, He, the Spirit. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> or it's, it's, there's many different ways to speak. It's the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of Jesus, it's the Spirit of Christ in you. Um, so so it's, it's, not as, it's not easy and cut and dried. There's no clear nomenclature. And it, I know I've probably made this a little deeper, but any, any questions on that before we move on? Yes, Zach. Yes, sir. Does the Spirit still give guidance today? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how is the $8 trillion question. I'm going to punt and push that off till we get to the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will be probably next week, because um, we're going to hit it. <laughs> so, so it's in my notes. It's what's, there's going to be a handout and everything. Come on, you don't want to ruin the handout, Zach. Come on. It's a pretty handout. It's yellow. Come on. Um, so absolutely, yes. Absolutely, the Spirit still gives guidance. He still guides and directs God's people. How is the $8 trillion question? And that'll be next bat, same, same bat time, same bat channel next week or the week after. We'll see. Um, okay. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Next, we've got to argue the Holy Spirit is God. So he's a distinct person. And, and you can see how, even just in that paragraph in Romans, some of these cults could conclude, if they only looked at one or two passages, the Spirit's just a power. It's just it's a spirit from God. It's a spirit from Jesus. It, but we've looked at some of the other passages. No, it, the Spirit is a he, a person. Um, and so as much as we can see how, if you just looked at one or two passages, you might conclude it's just sort of an impersonal force, like in Star Wars or something. Um, it, that will not suffice for all the Bible has to say. Now, the Spirit is also now God. So the Spirit is a person. Now the Spirit is God. And first we'll see he possesses the attributes of God. Um, we've already seen the Spirit is able to fully search the mind of the Father. Let's think of the implications of that. Your mind has to be at least as big as or as complicated as the mind you're searching. We, we will never know all of God's thoughts because we're finite. 
The Spirit is able to fully plumb the depths of the mind of God. The Spirit searches the mind of God. We already saw that in, in Romans 8 and in 1 Corinthians. But if you turn to Isaiah, or Isaiah, um, I listen to enough British people preaching, and they say about Isaiah and God's wrath, and you start, you start saying it. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's, I like it. And, and um, what was the other one? Dynasty? Greg Sweet used to get on my case when I'd say dynasty, but instead of dynasty. You listen to D.A. Carson enough, and you start saying Roth and Dynasty and Isaiah and 2 Samuel and all that other fun stuff. But Isaiah chapter 40. Um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, hold on. My paper Bible is taking me a while to get there. There we go. Uh, verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made his understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Now, these are rhetorical questions, but what they're meant to do is to say no one, right? I mean, obviously, the no one's, yeah, I, I, I taught the Spirit, held a class, he showed, no. The whole point is, this is the same language God uses for who would teach God. Um, who, has, who has measured or who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? The, the Spirit is omniscient. By implication from 1 Corinthians 2 and Romans 8, where the Spirit is able to fully plumb, to fully know the thoughts of the Father, and hear through rhetorical device, no one, the Spirit's wisdom and knowledge is infinite. Um, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And here is that famous psalm where David um, meditates on the attributes of God. First, God's sovereignty. And then, he dwells on God's omnipresence. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day to you, for darkness as is light with you. Where can I go from your spirit? And the clear answer is nowhere. Implication, anywhere I could possibly go, God's spirit is there. He's omnipresent. He's omnipresent. And he is eternal, point C. And again, this is just a short checklist of the attributes of God. We're, 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 just, seeing, um, we're just seeing him use the attributes of God that, that we don't possess. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. We are not eternal. We're kind of one-way eternal, like we'll never not be, but we came into being. Um, but the Spirit, He is eternal. Hebrews 9, 14. And here the author of Hebrews is making his much more, much better argument, the superiority of Christ over what has come before. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest 
to do the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. So it's just a qualifier that, that the author of Hebrews adds to the Spirit, and now we learn, oh, the Spirit's eternal. The Spirit's eternal. And only God is eternal. Only God never was not. Um, you and I, there was a time when we were not. There was a time when this creation was not. God and God alone is eternal. But more than that, turn to Acts 5. The Holy Spirit is clearly called God. We don't have to just do math and, and, and sort of snoop around like Sherlock Holmes and, and do math to figure out the Holy Spirit's God. He's called God directly in Acts 5. This is that account of Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they hold back some of the money that they, that they made from selling some property. They give it to the church. That's great. Here's the problem. They pretend they lie and indicate they gave the full sale price of the money when really they kept some of it back. And the problem is the lying. The problem isn't that they held some of it back. Peter's going to say, hey, money's yours to do what you want with. So let's just, let's just read the account in Acts 5, verses 3. Um, let's just start in verse 1. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. You see that? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. Equation, Holy Spirit, is God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're moving quickly, and I'll stop before we turn the page and, and uh, take some questions if there is any. Again, clearly stated, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 15 to 18. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Now, there it is. The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There it is again, the Lord, who is the Spirit. And remember, kurios, Greek New Testament for Lord, is frequently used to represent the Hebrew Yahweh. Um, and so he's saying the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, any, any questions on the front of this page? We've, we've just established two things, the personhood of the Spirit and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Elsa. We're back to grieving the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
Yes. I don't know if that's entirely true. Let me let me let me qualify. Let me for the tape. You asked only a Christian can can grieve the Holy Spirit because only a Christian can have the Holy Spirit within them. Only Christians in the New Covenant have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Although Stephen, when he's rebuking the leaders of Israel, says, "You've been resisting the Holy Spirit this whole time." So there's an external work of the Holy Spirit that is can work on unbelievers, and I don't know whether or not. An unbeliever can grieve the Holy Spirit. Only a Christian can grieve the Holy Spirit by virtue of the Holy Spirit being within them. But Stephen can still say, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and I don't know whether that grieves the Holy Spirit or not. So unbelievers can interact in that sense with the Holy Spirit, and I have no idea emotionally how he responds and feels and thinks about that. So it's certainly different for the believer, yes. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Okay, okay. He's... He's grieved. He's... No, Jesus says blasphemy. And so you're equating blasphemy of the Spirit. with, And we will deal with what is blasphemy of the Spirit. But that's not the same thing. Blasphemy is different than grieving. Agreed? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it, we will, we're getting there. This again, I'm punting simply because I got notes for this stuff coming up. So, so I'm just going to punt and, uh, and uh, see, look at that sports reference, eh? Um, and we'll get to that later. Any, um, <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's football. American football. Did I say rugby? No. Um, squash? Um, sorry. Uh, any other questions on the front page? The personhood and the deity of the Spirit? Zach! The Holy Spirit speaks. Oh, oh, this is one of my favorite things. Check this out. Go to Hebrews 2. Oh, this is so legit. Oh, it's these little tiny things you see in the Bible. It's these little tiny things you see in the Bible that you didn't see before. Like, oh, okay, check this. This is amazing. The, Zach, listen up. The Holy Spirit in about 10 seconds is going to speak. You're going to hear it audibly. Him. You're going to hear him audibly. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what's interesting is absolutely emphatically in the Greek, present tense, as the, is present, actual, present active indicative, as the Holy Spirit is or continues to say. Implication, every time we're reading and quoting the scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking. I think that's pretty cool. He doesn't say as the Holy Spirit said, even though this is, a, this is a Psalm of David, Psalm 95. It's not only attributing authorship to the Holy Spirit, he's saying as this is read or quoted, the Spirit is still speaking. So does the Holy Spirit talk? Yes, he does. I'm not saying that's the only way he talks. That's at least a way he talks. Fair enough?
Now, understand that when you hear the Bible being read, you're hearing God talk. As the Holy Spirit says, is saying, not said, is saying. So, anyway, I just think that's cool. It's one of those things, I, the 20th time I read it, I go, whoa, whoa. And then I grab my Greek, and does that really, yes, it, wow, okay, cool. That's, that's legit. Stacy, did you have a hand up? No. Oh, okay. 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 Any other questions before we flip the page? The personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Dustin. Yes, yes, yes. Because, um, well, let's go, let's go to what you're referencing. Um, the question is, isn't there a place where Jesus says, unless he goes, the Spirit won't come? Go to, um, to John 14, where we started our study. And let's take a look there. We'll go to John 14, and then we'll go to Ephesians 4. So, um, let's see, where is it? Um, is it in 15, or is it 14, 15? 14, 15. No, 14, 15 is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask, he'll give you the helper. But where's the one, I'm just in here, I just got to find it, where he says, it's to your good that I go. Um, might, be, might even be 15, it's one big, one big, um, or even 16. Oh dear. Um, this is what happens when you ask questions. That's okay, we'll figure it out. Um, okay, let's go to 16, I think. 16, 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the question is, why can't Jesus send the Spirit unless he, is, unless he leaves? That's what he says. It's to your benefit. And, and, and you think that through. Jesus on earth, the God-man Jesus, can only be in one place at one time by virtue of having a body and being a man. So it's really great for the group of people Jesus is hanging out with. The Spirit, however, can indwell all believers everywhere. And so when you wonder, how is it to our benefit we traded Jesus for the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus can only, he's great wherever he's at. <laughs> but for everybody else, it's not so great. The Spirit, yes, Seb. Yeah. It, it doesn't say that he cannot, but that he, he will not come. Okay. Okay. Unless I tell you the truth, uh, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send it to you. So it's not an issue of limitation. It's a, it's an issue of plan. It is an issue of plan. And it's an issue yeah. Ephesians 4, and we're going to go to, um, ooh, verse 7. And Paul, in Ephesians 4, is speaking of spiritual gifts. 
and he talks about the source of spiritual gifts, and, and he uses a coronation theme. Um, Jesus is the one who is born king of kings. That's true. Um, but there's another real sense in which Jesus, by virtue of the resurrection, becomes the king of kings. That, that'd be the way Philippians 2 talks about it. Therefore, God has, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of the Father, is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, biblically, you can speak of Jesus before his incarnation being king, but there's a biblical sense in which he really enters into his kingly rule at the resurrection and ascension. You with me so far? So at his resurrection and ascension, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? That's why Paul speaks about in Philippians 2. Well, Paul, picking up this metaphor, says this. As he's speaking about spiritual gifts, he says, but grace has been given, in chapter 4, verse 7, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... Now he's tracking. So when did Christ give us this gift? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And it's the picture of a coronation. As the king is going to his coronation, he's, he's giving gifts to people. He's, he's freed his people and they're in his train coming behind him and he's giving out gifts. In saying he, descend, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower region of the earth. And he who descended is the one who ascended from far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave, and then he starts talking about the spiritual gifts he gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So all of these spiritual gifts and the indwelling spirit are the gifts that Jesus gives as he ascends to his coronation as king of kings. And so Jesus first has to die and purchase the new covenant. Remember, he holds up the, the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant, my blood. Um, and the new covenant brings with it, its benefits include the spirit. You go to Jeremiah 31. He says, this is the covenant I'll make. I'll put my spirit within you, and, and you will, each of you know me from the least of you. And so Jesus has to go and purchase the new covenant, and then when he ascends on high, he gives gifts to his people. Namely, he gives the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit then distributes spiritual gifts. That's why it's part of the plan. If Jesus doesn't leave, he doesn't ascend, he doesn't give gifts. You, you with me? That's sort of the, 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 the divine plan, as it were. Jim, you're looking puzzled. You with me? Oh, you got it? Okay. Does that make any sense? Okay. Let's, any other questions before we flip over the sheet? We're flipping over the sheet. See, sometimes we spend like eight weeks on a sheet. This time we're just moving. Okay, here we go. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. Now, one of the things that's important for us to understand is the Holy Spirit's ministry is significantly different um, in the Old Testament as in the New. The functions. Just as Jesus' ministry in the Old Testament was very different. Remember we studied Jesus? We concluded that he is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Showing up in a burning bush. He's not doing that anymore from what I can tell. Um, after the incarnation and after the ascension, <clears throat> what he does is, is different. Now he's ruling, beginning to rule from his throne. And so the first time we see the Spirit is right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
We have no idea what specifically he was doing, but clearly he's active in creation as God is making these waters and separating them. There's the Holy Spirit in place to do whatever he's going to do. Don't know what that is. But what we get clearly is the Holy Spirit is an active participant in creation, which means all members of the Trinity are at work because John, John 1 tells us that Jesus was active in creation, right? John 1 um, <coughs> Sorry, um, he has made all things, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. All things came into being through him. So the scripture says that the, that the son is instrumental in the making of all things, that God, in Genesis 1-1, made all things, and here's the spirit. Not sure exactly what he's, part he's playing, but he's clearly a participant in the creation and ordering of the universe. The spirit was active in creation. Um, go to Job 33.4. Not only is he active in, in macro creation at the beginning of time and space, but he is still active in creation as a manner of speaking. According to Job 33.4, Job can... Elihu, who is one of the righteous ones in Job's book, because one of the things that's tricky with Job is you've got to figure out who's talking. Because not everyone who talks has got it right. Job's going to rebuke his first three advisors. But Elihu shows up, and he does not get rebuked. Um, which is significant when God shows up, and God rebukes Job's friends. He does not rebuke Elihu. He shows up at the end of the story, and basically he's the one who indicts Job for justifying himself. And so Elihu is speaking here, and he says in verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now, the word for breath is also spirit. It's the word nefesh. And it's spirit, breath, wind. It's all one concept. Um, and so it's a play on words. The Spirit of God has given me life, made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or, and the Spirit of the Almighty gives me life, however you want to take it. So not only is the Spirit active in creation at the beginning, the Spirit is apparently still active in creation of people in, in the world today. Um, so, so the Spirit is still at work um, giving life and making life, um, which is a pretty cool little observation. The Spirit of God made Job, and Elihu, well, made Elihu, which really should be Elihu. Um, now turn over to Psalm 104. Not only does the Spirit of God give life to people, but to all living things. Where does the life for all living, all life come from? The Spirit. Psalm 104, verse 24 through 30. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it up, they gather it up. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath or their spirit, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created.
created. And you renew the face, you renew the face of the ground. So God sends forth his spirit, and we've seen this makes sense. Elihu says, the spirit of God made me. And God sends forth his spirit, and, and animals are given life. So the spirit appears to be the, the member of the Trinity overseeing directly the ongoing life on, on planet Earth. Um, any, any questions on this? Somebody's got some questions way down there, but in the next room over. But oh, oh, yes. All right. Ah. Too late. Ruach. 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 Yeah. The breath of life and man became a living right. Being. Right. And the word for breath and spirit and wind are all the same. Yeah. Ruach. And so, yeah, it's, it's, he spirited into him the spirit of life. He breathed into him. You got to, context has got to help you figure out does this mean breath or does it mean spirit or does it mean wind? Um, and yeah, absolutely. It, make, it makes all the sense in the world. Um, that's their best way of, I mean, you think about it, if you're trying to think of the spiritual, something that can have power and do things but has no substance, wind is probably the best, or breath, because what, what just moved my hand? You can't see it, right? Now, now we can understand, okay, that was, but, but, but it makes perfect sense that wind is the perfect picture of the spiritual. It can do things, it has impact, and you can't see it, you can't put your arms around it, you can't put it in a box. It's, for all intents and purposes, Spiritual. It's not, we now know, it's not, but it, it's, it's a perfect analogy for the spiritual. That which does things, but is completely undiscernible apart from its doing. You, oh, look, there's wind over there. You can only see what wind's doing. There are the trees bending, there are the leaves moving. You don't see the wind. You see the effect of the wind, right? So breath is the small version of wind. You know, same thing. So that's, that's why those words are sort of used interchangeably. How do you define that which is non-material? doesn't extend into space, um, you find an analogy. Um, so sure. No, that's not a tangent. That's great. That's good. Anything else? Oh, okay. Alrighty then. Um, the Holy Spirit superintended the writings of Scripture. The Holy Spirit superintended the writings. We've got three minutes here. Before diving into this, um, let me just uh, let me just say a few words before starting this new point. We'll pick up the Holy Spirit superintendent. Now try to hold on to these. I'll print another twenty or thirty next week, but let's save a tree um, and try to hold on to these. But uh, one of the things we see is that, that God is at work. God is at work in creation, and one of the things we got to resist is the sort of deist, the deistic clockmaker picture of God or the computer programmer version of God where God made a really cool computer program and then he and the Trinity sort of sit back, fold their arms and sort of watch it go. Again and again and again and again and again we see in scripture that God is at work. So when, so when um, so Penny, when you've got baby goats the spirit of God is going forth giving them life. And Jim, when you have a baby boy it's the Spirit of God who gave him life and, and, and made him. And, and so we need, one of the things the Scripture wants us to see is God at work in creation around us. 
Um, he, Job, he's the one who causes the winds and calls him, and he sends forth the storm clouds, and he sends forth his ice and his snow. Now, he's working through, you look at that, he's working through the existing properties. It's not as though, well, I thought the barometric pressure had something to do with that. Sure it does, and God's working through that, but it's God working. Um, go, go to Job real fast. I want to... Just, this is an important point because the Scripture wants us to see and to marvel and to worship the Lord as we see Him at work all around us. And it's so easy for us to think once we know a natural explanation for something, there's no longer God at work. I used to think that was God. Now I learned that was, you know, gravity. What do you think gravity is? But God at work. Um, so Job, it's towards the end. I've got to highlight it. I've got to find it. Um, Come on, Job. Job chapter... Uh-huh, see what I did there? Okay. Um, Job chapter 38. And, and again, I know this is poetic. I know this is, this is a metaphor. I, but the poetry is meant if, it's meant... if it means anything, it's meant to communicate the nearness, the imminence of God, his active role in creation. Job here is now being rebuked by God. God himself has shown up because Job said he wanted to take God to court. Now he gets his chance. And God shows up and Job just puts his hand over his mouth and God says, I'm not done with you. Stand up and answer me. And Job says, I put my hand over my mouth and God says, stand up. I'm not done with you. Answer me. And God keeps talking. And as God is making his case to silence Job, he speaks about um, the things he does that Job doesn't understand that Job cannot do. So Job 38 um, let's see, verse 22. Oh, no, 19. As God asks these rhetorical questions. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? That is the, what is the way to the place where light is distributed, or where the east is scattered upon the earth, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the earth where no man is? or the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. Now God's taking credit here for the rain, for hail, for lightning, the growth of grass. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Now, of course, this is a poetic, metaphoric language. We're not talking about wombs, and like ice is like gestating. But the, the picture is pointing to his imminent and direct involvement with these things, right? I'm doing this. Just like a mother is, 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 is growing a child in her womb, I'm forming the ice. That's what God is saying. Um, verse uh, 20, 31. So now we move from the very small grass growing to the macro. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of horizon? Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? He is now claiming that he is the one moving the stars in the heavens, moving the constellations. He said, can, can, you, can you, when it's the right season, can you bring Orion out? Can you bring out the bear? Can you do that, Job? Clearly, he's saying he's doing that. 
It gets, it gets way better. Hold on. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs in a mass and the clogs stick together? Now, verse 39, love this. Job, hey, Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Understand what God is saying. Every... Ever since I've read this, I don't watch like the Planet Earth or the Nature Channel the same. You see, you know, you got the guy, and it's usually got like the Australian, the Australian accent. He's like, the she lion crouches low in the tall grass, waiting for the gazelle. Right? That's what happens. Right? You with me? Okay. Am I the only one? Okay. And so you're watching, and there's the lion crouching. According to Job, God talking to Job. That's look. Hey, look. There's God hunting the prey for the lion. That's what it says. Or can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in the thicket? Who provides to the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? Next time you hear birds chirping, they're crying to God. At least some of them are for help. The picture of Scripture, and again, I understand this is poetic, and I understand we're four minutes over, is a God who is immediately at hand, a God who is in this room with us, a God who is, is causing the wind to blow out there and making the grass to grow over there, a God who is at work, imminent and present and active, not far removed with his arms crossed, letting the machine run. And in that picture of a God who is active, it is the Holy Spirit most commonly spoken of as governing and running and giving life to this world. That's, that's my point. Okay. We'll pick this up next week. Thank you.